Welcome to episode 14 of the Harry Potter Lexicon podcast. My name is Steve Vanderark. I'm the creator and editor-in-chief of the Harry Potter Lexicon website. And boy, it has been a long time since my last podcast. I was checking, I think it's been about a year and a half. Um, wasn't really intended to be that way, but you know how life can be sometimes. But it is interesting. Um, I was thinking about the things that, um, uh, the, the situation with the world of Harry Potter, if you will, from a year and a half ago to now, and in some ways, not much has changed. It's it's interesting because um, uh, certainly there's some new chapters on Pottermore, um, things like that. But there's no, in some ways, things don't change that much in the in the world of Harry Potter. But in other ways, there's some pretty big changes. Uh, for example, Rowling uh, seems to be putting more emphasis back into Harry Potter than she did for a while there, um, after her two. Uh, her two non-Potter-related books, uh, Casual Vacancy and Cuckoo's Calling. Um, she seems to be putting a little bit more time and effort into creating new content for Harry Potter. I'm thinking about the uh, the fact that there's supposedly a play coming up um, for the London stage. Uh, I've had some people ask what I think about that. I think it's fantastic. Uh, obviously, great. Any chance for for new uh, new canon I think is terrific, and that would, in my opinion be new canon, um, gets us right back to the whole debate which we have and which I brought up for 13 episodes already. What is canon? What what is What do we consider to be real, quote-unquote, Harry Potter? And, and my, my, my kind of rule for myself has always been that if, if, it's, if I can say that it is for sure written by J.K. Rowling, that I consider that to be canon, written or spoken by. So, so I... I go to interviews and things like this, and I accept those as as canon. So the play, I would assume, I think of that as being, uh, uh, will be canon, because she is going to be directly working with that. But then you could say, well, wait a minute, she directly works with the films. And so aren't the films canon? And I guess when it comes down to it, uh, I know uh, kind of her relationship with the people who made the films. I know how much she felt that she could tell them what to do and how much she could, um, or could, I suppose she could have basically done what she wanted to, but but the level she wanted to work at. And um, she gave them a lot of free reign uh, with the Harry Potter universe, and they changed many things, things which clearly are not canon, and she was okay with that. And so in a sense, you know, she's defined her relationship with the films as far as canon goes. In this case, I, I, we don't know exactly. It says she's, she made it very clear that she will be working with the creators of the play. Um, what does that does that mean? She's going to write it. Does that mean that she is going to um, uh, clear everything to make sure that it's that it fits? That's kind of the impression I get. Um, it, it's just interesting. Whenever I run into this, I'm, I think back to I. I Years ago now, I toured the Electronic Arts Studio in Guildford in England uh, where they were making the Harry Potter uh, video games. And I had quite a conversation with the with the people there about how much Rowling was involved in the creation of those video games. Um, I, that, that's always been a, a, a fond memory for me because when I got there, I discovered that they had printouts from the Lexicon website all over the walls of the studio. They were using the maps and the and the the, the calendars and the charts and the detail, everything. They were using the the Lexicon as a reference, which to me was just wonderful. What a, as a fan, um, working hard as a fan, creating a reference the way that I had to know that they were using it in that way was was a, was an honor. But um, you know, they said that uh, she creates things for the the games and for the um, for the th- work that they did. She worked with them, but uh, some parts of it she created, some parts she didn't. Some parts was was their work, and they were not essentially weren't allowed to say which bits were more directly from her and which were not. Um, because you know, at that time anyway, the the idea was that they were not to put on their game. This is new content directly from J.K. Rowling. So I kind of feel like you know that was the the way that they went at it with the games back then. Um, is that the way it is now with like with the play? I I have no idea. Um, if we get some indication as the production goes on 
of how much input she has, then I guess I would be able to say with more with more clarity where that fits into the to the levels of canon because some things are clearly more more canon than others, if you will um and this also comes into play when it comes to we're going to talk about the wonder books uh in a moment because um, there's a new one of those coming along, and what's the status of those in terms of of canon um and then the, the the new Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them film, which is supposedly uh, in the works. I say supposedly, that's not really fair. We know it's in the works. But um, to what extent, I mean, she came up with the story idea, it sounds like. But to what extent is that going to be actually written by her? It sounds like it's not going to be written directly by her. Um, but again, we're going to have that same sort of ambiguous situation of, of of how much of this do we accept as canon and that also connects up with um i've i've been doing a lot of research lately because i've been doing a lot of um uh adding of material to the harry potter lexicon and i i keep struggling with how to where to draw that line of what to put into the lexicon and what not to put in the lexicon mostly because uh the Lexicon is a different website than some of the other reference websites that are out there. I like that difference. I want to keep that difference. Um, I love some of these other websites. I think they're incredible, um, and I and I, I I love going to them. I love reading them. But I find myself a little confused sometimes because I'll see things and I think, where in the world did that come from? And then I'll have to really drill down to find out that, oh, no, that came from, like, the Lego game or something, which to me is, is not something that I would put on the lexicon. And then I go back to the lexicon and I realize that there's plenty of stuff on the lexicon that's that just as difficult for someone to figure out where that information came from. Um, and I guess at one point, the lexicon was intended to be, uh, you know, that I almost like, well, if it's on here, just assume that we've done the research and we know that this, that this is uh, canon, which is not at all fair in a way for me to list things for example from the daily profit newsletters if i list things from the daily profit newsletters i just assume or everybody else is going to have to just assume that i'm not kidding that <laughs> that's what's really in those newsletters because most people don't have access to to the daily profit newsletters um, the fact that I do means that in some way you guys i guess people have to trust me but is that fair? And is it fair then for me to criticize, or uh, criticize isn't the word, but for me to be a little bit, uh, what's the word, confused? I'm not sure. When I go to another website and I find information that I don't feel like I can trust exactly where that came from. So th- this whole thing of canon is, is, it's fun in a way. I know it's kind of weird to say that a struggle is fun, but it is fun to talk about it and try to work it out and try to make a decision, which loops me back when I'm researching and referencing things for the Lexicon website, I often have to make that determination. Okay, what am I going to include? What am I not? Where am I drawing my lines? What takes precedence over what? Because, for example, um, the famous wizard cards, which we know Rowling directly has said she specifically wrote those cards. Well, that's that should be canon then, right? I mean, that she has made that very clear. She wrote those cards. Those conflict with Quidditch Three Ages or Fantastic Beasts, which she also obviously wrote. So we have to just kind of I know you say, well, just just write the fact that they don't agree and go on, which which we could do, but there, <laughs> there's that part of us as fans which we all kind of wanna treat this as if the the world of Harry Potter is a real place and there must be some actual real final correct answer to this stuff and and if we could just find it if we could just figure out you know the 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 real truth um and 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 we we would be all set whereas in fact of course it's a world created by a person who is extremely good at it but that doesn't mean she's never going to make a mistake um it's it's interesting because i was just I was on Facebook uh, because I, you know, it's kind of fun to get on there and just kind of interact and, and go through things. And so, and one of the things that I, I uh, had kind of wondered about is why the, the Book of Spells, that's the um, uh, 
uh, augmented reality game which came out uh, last year, I believe, for PlayStation. Why the Book of Spells, it says, has been translated into gobbledygook, which is the language of the goblins, but goblins aren't allowed to carry wands. And so what would be the point of saying that the that the book has been translated into gobbledygook? Well, you know, and uh, you think about it, and if Rowling is writing this this piece of text, which supposedly is being said by Miranda Goshawk, and she writes that just because she's saying that the book has been translated into 72 languages, including gobbledygook and mermish, which are two of the you know, the few actual other named languages that there are in her created world. And so she just, you know, puts them in there. Now, we can just say, oh, okay, she's just tossing those in there. They're just uh, they're just in there for the, for the effect, you might say. And that's probably what it is. But it's fun to kind of go into the story itself and say, okay, what would be the logic? What would be the reason why um, somebody would translate a book of spells into gobbledygook? Well, you know, then I start thinking, well, wait a minute. One of the famous wizard cards is Oswald Beamish, and he was a pioneer of goblin rites, and he was certainly uh, lived after the initial publication of Book of Spells 200 years ago. So maybe, you know, as part of his, you know, pioneering efforts towards goblin rites, he translated this this spell book. That would make sense. Or, um, and again, this is from the Daily Prophets. The BOG, the Brotherhood of Goblins, has this big uh, supposed meeting with the Ministry of Magic, which turns into a riot in Chipping Sodbury. And then some there, there's a fellow by the name of a goblin by the name of Ragnock the Pigeon Toad, who is the author of a book called Little People, Big Plans. So, you know, well maybe he, as a goblin author, would have been one who did this translation to try to try to you know promote the idea that goblins should be allowed to uh, to carry wands. So it's fun to kind of go into the story and kind of come up with stuff like that. Um, so, yes, on one hand, we do need to be realistic. We need to say that J.K. Rowling, you know, is not perfect, doesn't always make everything fit, but it is fun to try to, try to make these things fit together. I mean, speaking of the Book of Spells... The Book of Spells was written supposedly by Miranda Goshawk 200 years ago, whereas, according to the famous wizard cards, Miranda Goshawk was born in 1921. So, you know, the only logical explanation is there are two Miranda Goshawks, one of them born 200 years ago, who wrote the original Book of Spells, had a sister named Romilda, who accidentally got a tail, etc., etc. And then maybe a, a... descendant of hers, also named Miranda Goshawk, who took that and turned it into the book series that we that we hear about and that the, the kids at Hogwarts have to um, uh, purchase every year, have to purchase a new volume for the, for the new year. So, you see, we can make sense of things like that. It's kind of fun to do, actually, um, and kind of keep the, keep the world consistent, you might say. Um, and there's another Wonder Book coming, Book of Potions. Um, I'm not quite sure. I'm, I'm recording this in January 2014, whether that book is already out or... I, I believe it is. I believe it has come out now. Um, I just said, I said this before, and I, I'm disappointed that there's things like this, uh, uh, which are I would consider to be canon, but which are not accessible to anyone who isn't... Got, who doesn't have hundreds and hundreds of dollars to throw down to get a PlayStation and a Move controller and a, a little eye thing and all that kind of stuff, um, plus of course the program itself. Um, those that, that I, I wish that there was a way to to uh, I, I wish that the that the that the information had come out also in book form or something like that. But yeah, well, be that as it may, not much we can do about it. Um, I did have somebody email me and ask what I thought of uh, Rowling's other books, uh, The Casual Vacancy and The Cuckoo's Calling, and I haven't read them. Um, I guess the best way to put that is I'm a fan of the Harry Potter universe. I'm not necessarily a fan just of J.K. Rowling, you know, in general. I have nothing against her, obviously, but, uh, you know, my my fan activities center around the Harry Potter universe itself. And um, I'm only mildly uh, interested in reading anything in any of those other books. Um, I haven't. Uh, I, sh- I should probably try to do it at some point, but uh, it's not really, not really high on my list. So if someone else, I guess we'll have to have to uh, provide a review of those because it's not going to be me. Um, let's see. Moving on, Pottermore. I, I really do want to 
talk about Pottermore because uh, there's been a redesign since last time uh, I've recorded a podcast. Beautiful redesign. I, I like it very, very much. Um, there's some positives and some a few minor negatives as well, mostly negatives for people like me who try to track all the new information. Um, in the first version of Pottermore, all the additional texts, such as um, the things that Rowling had written about various things. All of that was uh, on the screen as text, and you could, you know, select it and copy it and things like this, um, which was handy for somebody who was trying to keep track of that information and was writing new information into the Lexicon website. I don't, I don't directly copy uh, text from Pottermore directly into the Lexicon, but even so, it's good. It's handy f- as a way to 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 research. Um, to be able to just collect things, say, in one note or whatever, and to be able to um, keep track of information. Uh, the new version, all of that uh, text is, uh, I guess you would basically a graphic, which just makes it a little trickier. Um, but that's the only minus, uh, and that minus wouldn't even apply to most people. The pluses, uh, uh, the navigation is much, much better, much easier. And I think the, the key thing I really, really like is that now there's a little... Um, uh, might we call it progress bar or whatever at the bottom of each of the little scenes to tell you if you've found everything if you've triggered every bit of flash animation if you have whether it's flash or html5 i'm not sure how they programmed this but whether you've triggered all the animations whether you've found all the bits and pieces uh, you can tell uh, whether you've found everything which is really cool because for me i was really surprised when it came out and i went back and just and found out just how many scenes that I thought I was long done with and I hadn't found everything yet. I, I, I think I'd found all of the the objects and cards and books and things like this, but I hadn't triggered everything or whatever. So it was kind of fun, chance to kind of go back through and discover uh, what I'd missed. And, you know, often it was just a matter of setting some birds in flight off of the trees or something like that. But even so, it's it's fun. Downside of that, two of them. Number one, there's a couple of scenes when I cannot find whatever that last little thing is that's that needs to get triggered or whatever. I cannot seem to finish them. One of them was the um, oh the Quidditch World Cup Stadium uh, from Goblet of Fire. I can't find what it is I'm missing. I've I've gone through everything. I've dragged that mouse across and cannot figure out what little doodad or trigger or whatever I haven't found. And uh, so that's that's unfortunate. Um, but the 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 sad thing is when you have actually found everything, and I know I've said this before, but there's really no way to unfind them and kind of go back through and and explore it again. Once you've done it, you've done it. And I've had people say, "Well, just create a new a new." Um, you know, new new character, but sh- technically you're not allowed to do that. That's against the terms of service. You can't have more than one account. I suppose you could delete your old account and then create a new one. But I kind of like to keep my account. It's got everything. Um, you know, uh, I've got a lot of people have friended and things like this on there. So I really don't want to lose my account. So um, it's it's just I, I I wish there was a reset button that you could reset and and yeah maybe not get the credit again, but just be able to go through, reset the page, and, and just try it over again or or whatever. Um, but I guess that's me just... Uh, because for somebody like me, once I've found everything, I have very little incentive to go back to Pottermore until some new chapters come out. Um, now, that being said, that's, that's not entirely true. Um, because what I really like about Pottermore, a number of things I really like, but one of them is the fact that the illustrations themselves are um, probably as close to a canon version of Harry's world as as, as a visual canon, <laughs> if you will, that we're ever going to get. Um, since Rowling is, is, again, we don't know her actual, you know, how much is she okayed everything, but look at, look at the details in there. I mean, you'll find details that match the books exactly. Whereas... Um, for example, if you look at at the um, uh, Fang, if you look at Fang in, in Pottermore, he looks like a Great Dane. He doesn't look like a Neapolitan, Neapolitan Mastiff, which is what they used in the books. I mean, in the films, um, things like that. They they're clearly trying to um, 
match the books with the with the artwork and um i mean i can't imagine that any one of those scenes gets onto the website without rolling specifically uh, looking at that picture and saying yep that's that's correct that works so in some ways that this is going to be our our the best and most uh, most canon correct version of Harry's world that we're going to get. So it's kind of fun to look at that and try to decide, okay, uh, so this is this is what Hagrid's house really looks like. It's it's made out of wood, of course, but it, you know, this is this is the vision that she has for it. Um and so on and so forth. And and the fact that they wear robes not the way not not British school uniforms like you see in the films, but actual robes like you see described in the books. Um, there are just a number of things like this which clearly they are they are trying to be as close to the books as they possibly can. Now, it, it is interesting because um, I do find it a little bit curious that there is information which is missing. For example, Madame Hooch's first name. There is no first name given, and uh, you could say, well, you know, there's none in the books either. But but there is a first name out there with the first name is Rolanda, which comes from the Harry Potter trading card game. Now, you uh, you could say, well, okay, wait a minute, that's that's a trading card game. How canon is that? Well, Rowling actually, again, this is at the, coming at the same time in that 2000 2001 time between books. Um, four and five when she was, you know, getting involved in all of these different parts, you know, kind of expanding her, her, um, the Harry Potter universe to other products and things. And she did have input into that. For example, we learned Phileas Fitwick, Flitwick's first name from the trading card game. And later on, it turned out to be correct. It was given that way in various other canon sources, including books. So, um, you know, there are a number of things, and, and, and a number of spells and things turned up first in the trading card game and have since turned up in canon. So there's no reason to think that, that it couldn't be correct. But then why didn't it uh, show up on Pottermore? Why is there no first name for Madame Hooch and Pottermore? So that's just one of those things that I wonder about and probably nobody else does, but that's the way it goes. Um, anyway, uh, there's there's uh, some... If you are, happen to be listening to this about the same time as I'm recording it, uh, the main screen for Pottermore has a kind of a winter makeover, which is really cool. The um, giant squid is coming up out of the ice in the lake and things like this. So take a look if you haven't uh, looked at it recently, just to kind of um, enjoy that. Um, moving along, before we got, get into kind of the meat of this, which uh, and we, we are going to talk about Book 7, but I did want to also just, I had somebody actually uh, email me, which really made me feel kind of good, because I, there is a format to these podcasts. I don't just jabber on and on. Well, I do jabber on and on, but I try to stay into some sort of a format. And um, one of the things I like to do is I like to go into the Lexicon um, website and book and kind of talk about the background of some things. Um, because... The the Lexicon website doesn't give a lot of the background information on where things come from, sources and things like that. And I think I've talked in the past on this podcast about why that is, because um, there was a time, you know, eight, seven, eight years ago, when there were other websites, which that's what they did. There was a website called What's in a Name, which all they did was list the names and tell the sources of where these things came from. Well, at that time, the 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 kind of the climate in fandom was that we're all working together and so i didn't try to replace um that uh, priscilla's website with the lexicon and so i let her kind of handle that i i provided links to her site rather than just kind of reproduce that information on the lexicon and now of course this is 8 years later and you think well you know maybe that should be added maybe you're right um but be that as it may, when the when the book came out, the Lexicon book here, um, then I put in a lot of those, um, a lot of the background information about things. Well, uh, one of the things which uh, came up, and I was just kind of paging through, looking through, doing some research. I was actually researching the Book of Spells, the the one the Wonder Book, Book of Spells, and it mentioned in there was the play, as in the dramatic presentation. Alas, I have transfigured my feet which was originally mentioned in Quidditch Through the Ages. Um, 
in chapter 8. And uh, Rowling puts that into the text of um, talking about the fire-making spell um, incendio. And she just mentions a, a, a production of Alas, I Have Transfigured My Feet. Now, as I was reading that, it just struck me again of how much fun it is as to be a Harry Potter fan, in a sense, because she is using a reference which was, let's face it, a throwaway reference in Quidditch Through the Ages. It is, again, just a throwaway reference, you might say. None of this has you know big, huge implications for anything. But just to show you the level of fun that she has, cleverness that she uses in creating this stuff. Alas, I've Transfigured My Feet is a play. It is written by a French playwright called Malacrit, and Malacrit is French for badly written. So the play is written by somebody whose name means badly written. Um, and then the it was written in the early 1400s. It has two characters, and I am not I don't speak French and can't even pretend to pronounce it correctly, but um, the the two French names of the two characters translate to frog and toad, which if you've, you know, I'm an I'm a elementary teacher, so I right away recognize frog and toad as the names of the characters in the books, frog and toad books by Arnold Lobel, which I, well, you can't help but think that she was making some sort of a little, little tiny reference to that. Um, and then in the Book of Spells, it is mentioned that this play was put on, a very famous production of it, uh, very badly produced, but it had the, and this is a quote, the famous foot transfiguration scene, which has, and again a quote, the traditional puff of yellow smoke. So what she's doing is she's just giving us this sense that the Wizarding World is a real place. There are traditions Traditions which have nothing to do with anything, really, but we just get this impression that that the world, the wizarding world, has traditions. It has plays that everybody knows, everybody's familiar with, and there's normal, traditional ways of doing that particular play. Um, all of that, just again, is a way of one small example out of many, many examples of how Rowling's world is just so rich and well-rounded, and and has such depth to it. Um, and, and and that, I think, is one of the reasons why somebody like me, I just love researching and looking things up and, and, and finding these new connections. And so because there's so many of them and there's so much fun, they're, they're, they're part of what makes it so much fun to to be a Harry Potter fan, because there is so much to to dig into and to notice and to enjoy Um and and again, I guess you also get a little bit of a picture of what wizarding theater is like. The fact that there is such a thing as wizarding theater, there's no theater per se mentioned as in like a specific building or anything in, say, Diagon Alley or anything like that. But there is a, a, a there are people whose job it is to put on plays. Um, it's mentioned that there's a special effects wizard who is um, working on the on the. Uh, the the performance of Alas, I've Transfigured My Feet, and also a director and all these kinds of things. Um, so, as a matter of fact, if in um, um, Tales of Beetle the Bard, it's actually mentioned that a performance of Fountain of Fair Fortune uh, at Hogwarts as a Christmas pantomime, uh, the, the, the person who directed that went on to uh, become a teacher at the Wizarding Academy of Dramatic Arts. So, I mean, all of these things just kind of connect up, and it just makes it... Uh, it just adds to the richness of of this world, and uh, I guess adds to why it's so much fun to be a Harry Potter fan. Um, and and again, I'm 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 gonna just gonna read a quote because I like finding these things. I've mentioned that before. This is a quote actually from uh, 2000 from an interview uh, that um, Anne Treneman did from the Times in uh, in in Britain um, with J.K. Rowling. It's just called J.K. Rowling, the interview. And this is one thing that it that it says, and I like this because it's a great great way of just looking at the Harry, world of Harry Potter. It is impossible to talk to Rowling about her childhood without also talking about Harry Potter and his life at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. Part of this is because she has ransacked bits of her past and given them to Harry and his friends, Hermione and Ron. But part of this also is that Rowling spends a lot of time inside Harry's world, and it is real to her. Every character has a family tree, a psyche, even dietary requirements. She's in charge, so she knows their futures, but she doesn't let much slip. She likes secrets. 
Now, that is from uh, June of 2000. And so, yeah, she knows their futures, doesn't let much slip. She likes secrets. And that's actually a kind of a... uh, a good connection to a conversation about book seven, because uh, when that interview was given back in 2000, that was right after, um, um, uh, right about the time of Goblet of Fire, everything was secrets. Everything was um, hints and clues. I, I, in, in the last podcast that I did, in episode 13, I alluded to this idea of um, that that in those first four books, she was really in the business of hiding things, really in the business of creating the mystery, of setting up all the clues. Um, and and she really didn't spend a whole lot of time, make a whole lot of effort to answer any of her questions. As a matter of fact, she kind of intentionally, as that quote said, kept her secrets. She liked secrets. Um, and, and, and I started to wonder, when it came to book five, and I think especially book six, how much the fact that we fans were so intent on teasing out every conceivable connection, every hint, every clue, how much of that affected what she wrote in book five and book six? How much of that affected, um, I'm trying to figure out how to put this, when she was writing book five and book six, I would I, I I can all I can imagine that she was having to be a lot more careful about what she said. Um certainly by the time of you know book 4 it was already starting but you know it was book 4 really was wasn't until book 4 came out that fandom really exploded. Um I mean when book 3 came out there was no you know parties at midnight or anything. We just all went and bought it at the store and it wasn't until book 4 that there were the midnight parties and things. And so it, I mean, I, th- I think as she wrote book five and six, she was perhaps, and again, this is all just my wonderings, but I wonder if she didn't leave some things out, which might have otherwise gotten into book five and six, but she may have left things out or hidden them away or or held back some clues and things just because it would have been too possibly too easy for people to have figured it out. And I guess I'm specifically referring to the fact that one of my one of my big and I don't want to use the word problems, one of my big difficulties of book seven is this whole concept of the Deathly Hallows. For the book to be called that, for that to be a focus of that very, very important book, it just seemed strange to me that there was no hint whatsoever of those deathly hallows up until book seven none i mean no hint no 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 suggestion this was not true of horcruxes we thought first it was when book six came out there was a lot of talk people saying well that's not fair where did these come from just you know out of nowhere shouldn't we have no well the more you go back through the series the more you realize that yeah there, there were hints there there were there was plenty of I mean, she may not have had the word Horcrux worked out, but she certainly knew that these magical items existed. I mean, look at the diary uh, and, and, and other... Uh, plenty of things that, that that she knew that Voldemort was splitting his soul, was saving those pieces, uh, was hiding them in something. She might not have had every detail worked out, but clearly this was not something she came up with brand new in Book 6. But book seven, the Deathly Hallows really felt like they were just completely came up out of nowhere, almost as a as a plot device. And now, let's look at before before we go on with book seven. Let's look quickly again at the whole series. And the reason I'm doing this partly is because I've talked about this a lot. I talk about it nearly every podcast, but for some of us. It's been a long time since we've listened to one of these podcasts, and so I want to make sure we're on the same page. If you just listen to the last few, you're going to go, okay, how, you know, are we going to say this again? But yeah, I am. Here's, here's the breakdown in my way of looking at these books. Books 1, 2, 3, and 4, are their, their purpose is to give us Harry the superhero, the... Harry the action figure, Harry the the starting to gain power, starting to have all these things which are on his side, which he can possibly use 
as we start to realize, I mean, we all kind of realized from book one, at some point there's going to be the big ultimate showdown with Harry and Voldemort. How is it going to happen? Well, in books one through four, we're seeing Harry gain strength, traditional strength. He is gaining power. He's learning spells. He's finding his strength in flying. Remember, book four ends with the, with or the whole, whole of book four is about the Triwizard Tournament and about him becoming, showing himself to be more powerful than his years would suggest. And, um, uh, he is he is becoming powerful in defense against the dark arts. We see that in three and in four. And all of this is happening through this. Book five, we see all of that destroyed, which is why it's such a, uh, a harsh book in some ways, why it's a difficult book in some ways. All of those things which make Harry strong in the traditional sense, all of the things which, if we would see Harry have a final huge battle with Voldemort, the strength he would need to, to win that battle, all of those things we are seeing taken away in in book five. All of his, and we've been through this, so I don't want to go too much onto that, but that's what happens in book five. We see this, this stripped away from him, and then this incredibly important sequence at the end of book five where he doesn't want to be Harry anymore, where he struggles to try to um, come to terms with the fact that his heroics of what, what are, are what has essentially killed Sirius. And then his desperate desire to try to reconnect, talk to the ghosts, do whatever he can, the mirror, all of these things, trying to, to, to in a sense, resurrect the dead, to try to get his, get his godfather back. All of that has to happen. And one of those incredibly key moments is Luna saying, well, it's not like we'll never see them again. And Harry finding a spiritualness, um, a spirituality, I guess is the word, um, which is this change to become this new person. And we talked about that in book five. Book six, he is becoming that new person. We see the that love is starting to dominate his life. Um, his his connections are being rebuilt, but in a new way. His connections with Dumbledore. His he he is not the Quidditch, you know. The the, the he gets he gets taken away from Quidditch, and it's okay. He's he's I mean it's not okay, but that's not the focus of his life anymore. His focus changes. His his power is starting to come from totally new new sources. That's what happens in book six. At the end of book six, we have Dumbledore passing on the mantle saying, I'm not afraid, I'm with you. And Harry then, you know, Dumbledore is killed. Harry moves on, and now we go to book seven, and Harry becomes that leader and becomes powerful in a whole new way. And that is where we need to start our discussion about book seven. And I am going to step out a minute before we go on with that train of thought and just there's there's a there's a reason why it was so hard to get started with this particular podcast and it wasn't just the fact that there's a lot of things happening in real life that have made you know uh, taken the focus away from Potter for a while but as I was getting ready to do this podcast I will have to say I struggled and if you've been following me on on Facebook and Google Plus and things, you know this because I've been making comments to that effect. Um, and it's it's funny when the book came out, when Book Seven came out. Obviously, this was incredibly important uh, in the life of a Harry Potter fan at that time. I mean, this was the final book. This was the answers. This would provide all the answers to the, all of the questions. Um, and I was uh, at the Sectus Convention in London at the time. And uh, the the convention, uh, the, about 600 people were there. We all got the book at midnight at the same time. And then we all just spent the next, you know, I don't know how many hours, uh, 12, 15, 16 hours, just reading the book. I mean, that's basically what happened. Some people didn't, but most people, most of the fans there at that convention just curled up and read that book for the next 12, 15 hours. I was scheduled to speak at this convention at 3 o'clock the next afternoon about uh, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. That was that was my... my I, was, I was on the schedule. 
And I remember I finished the book uh, shortly before three, and I walked into that um, uh, lecture hall, and I was supposed to talk about the book. And I can remember being completely overwhelmed. Um, I, I, I cannot remember much of what I even said. I remember that, you know, we kind of commiserated over the loss of various characters, um, uh, talked about how how how, um, how difficult it had been to read about, you know, the people that had died and, and the way things had changed and how excited we were about uh, Neville and, and Luna and Ginny, you know, and wishing that we knew more about what had gone on at Hogwarts. I remember using the phrase, the camping trip from hell, and getting a laugh. So, you know, that I remember. But I remember that I was just completely overwhelmed. That I, I, there was just way too much to take in. And I couldn't wrap my head around it. And I really was not sure. I, I, I didn't feel that I could talk intelligently yet about how everything fit together. And I will be perfectly honest. I still have that feeling. I've read the book again over the last two weeks just as a way of kind of getting myself ready to do the podcast. And I've read it, and as always, I mean, this is about my 25th time of reading it. I still find new things, find new comments and references and things. And But I still feel like I'm just, like it's nebulous, like I can't quite grasp on to everything that's going on in that book. Um which is, I guess, and there are probably some people who say, that's crazy. You know, I got it. I, I figured it out. I read it once or twice, and I've got it. Great. I'm I'm glad. I've, the, the, the biggest two mysteries that were staring at me in the face at the point of um, finishing the book for the first time is, what is with the Hallows? <laughs> what was that about? And how come the ending just didn't, seem and how how come it ended the way it did i guess um i was i mean i get now that there could not there should not there cannot be a violent confrontation between harry and voldemort that that can't be if it's a violent confrontation you've just negated the entire series and yes i'm looking at you harry potter and the deathly hallows part two film um there just can't be because that ruins the whole point so that being said, those two big things were staring me in the face. So, okay, let's let's try to sort this out. And if if you know if I still don't get it, uh, you know what? We can we can talk about it. First of all, what's with the Hallows? And I guess that goes back to what I was saying: is those seemed like they were just like totally a plot point thrown in there for no particular reason. What in the world does that have to do with anything? Just what? There wasn't enough There wasn't enough to finding Horcruxes, so we needed some extra story bits to fill out the chapters? What, what was that about? And it's surprising how long it's taken me to really understand this. And this is what I mean when I say I'm not sure that she would not have had some hints of that in Book 6 or maybe in Book 5, but if it hadn't been for the fact that she wanted to save this extremely important plot point for book seven. And don't think for one second that the Deathly Hallows are anything less than the critical plot point of the book. Remember, if we're looking at Harry having to be one kind of hero or the other kind of a hero, if that is the point, and again, I guess this is what I'm saying is the point, and there may be others who have a different point of view on that, but if that is, in fact, the point of the whole series, then the Deathly Hallows become critically important. Whether or not they should have been mentioned earlier, they, you know, whether somewhere along the line we should have heard something about the Tales of Beetle the Bard, or we should have heard, you know, somebody be surprised at the power of Harry's cloak, or something like this, to just have given us that hint. But be that as it may, think about the fact that those that the, the Deathly Hallows become the crux of Harry's making that decision between those two identities, which is what he does after Dobby's death. The reason that that is so important is because he then makes that final, fateful decision, which he's been on the track all along for the last couple of books. 
well, certainly book six, but he at some point had to actually become that new hero, if you will, the final nail in the coffin of being the fighting, battling superhero had to be had to be in place. And so that's what the Hallows are. And so look at it. I mean, if if you look at that, um, Harry was certainly aiming in that direction early in the book, even um, when his wand of its own accord battles against Voldemort in the Battle of the Seven Potters. And Nobody wants to believe that uh, that that he didn't do that himself because his wand is so powerful or he is so powerful. I mean, here's a quote. It wasn't like that, said Harry through gritted teeth. His scar was burning. He felt angry and frustrated. He hated the idea that they were all imagining him to have power to match Voldemort's. You see, that's 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 exactly, that's the point. He realizes deep down that if they expect him to be have that kind of power it's not going to work he knows that if it's that if it was that it was just his wand and that he cannot trust that his wand is going to be the thing that makes that happen in the end he is now subconsciously always focused on that end that ending that final confrontation that he knows is going to happen another quote this is also from deathly house harry you keep talking about what your wand did said hermione but you made it happen why are you so determined not to take responsibility for your own power and his reaction is because i know it wasn't me and so does voldemort hermione we both know what really happened they glared at each other. Harry knew that he had not convinced Hermione, and that she was marshalling counter-arguments against both his theory on his wand and the fact that he was permitting himself to see into Voldemort's mind. But you see, he sees, he knows, just like Voldemort, that that is not going to be that what's going to let him win. Because he knows Voldemort will find a way around it. He knows Voldemort knows. And then he is faced with that hero problem and, and and you can even go back to what what um, you know what 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 Dumbledore said about him you remain pure of heart just as pure as you were at the age this is from Half-Blood Prince sorry you remain pure of heart just as pure as you were at the age of 11 when you stared into a mirror that reflected your heart's desire and it showed you only the way to thwart Lord, Lord Voldemort not immortality or riches the incomparable power of a soul untarnished and whole. That's that same power that he is knows now. He sees that's the power he needs to have. That power that gave him that that, that he that, that came that showed when he looked into the mirror of Irised. Um he says, Am I to know but not to seek? In other words, that is he to know about the power of that wand, the elder wand, but not to go after it. And that decision is the final decision that he makes. After Dobby's death, he completes his metamorphosis. He completes this change into that kind of a hero. He says, um, you know, basically he has to decide, does he going to get the more powerful wand and hope that he can actually fight against Voldemort? Or is he going to just keep taking away those... Um, crutches that Voldemort has remove the safety net so that when Voldemort does in fact fall he will not be able to survive in other words Harry is making the decision I'm not going to be able to fight him no matter what I'm not supposed to fight him fighting him has never been the point it is ways to defeat him it's the mirror all over again it is not finding some sort of power it is only finding the way to thwart to block to defeat in terms of create a situation where Voldemort can't win and that un that soul untarnished and whole is what he decides he needs to have he needs to have the power of that pure soul and even though Hermione can't see it, even though um, he uses the Expelliarmus charm on Stan Shunpike and he's called to task for it by um, Lupin, 
Lupin, who doesn't understand either, who says, why, you can't use Expelliarmus because that's going to be seen as your signature move. And Harry says, look, I'm not going to attack and kill someone. I'm just not going to. Um, He is keeping his soul untarnished and whole. And others around him don't see it, can't see it. You know, Ron and Hermione don't see it. That's why the source of problems between them during the camping trip from hell. I mean, it's... He, the only person who really ever sees it, whoever understands, is Harry. And he does understand it. He, he, he gets it. And as a result of getting it, he knows that when he comes to the end, when he faces off with Voldemort, he cannot fight him. He, if he does, that will completely go against everything that he has been creating, doing, everything that he is. That showdown has to be drastically different. It has to be in a completely different mode or style than what we see in the films. Um, it has to be nonviolent. It has to be it has to be almost gentle. It has to be Harry completely in control of the conversation. Harry completely in control of everything that's going on around him. Harry even offering remorse. Uh, that right there shows the wholeness of Harry's soul. The fact that he offers, says, why don't you feel remorse? Because there is still a way out. Unfortunately, that isn't what we see in the film. And, you know, I don't want to go on and on because, you know, sometimes I can just get so frustrated. But I will tell you, I, I don't know. Am I the only one? I've watched the movie and the whole last part of the movie, the whole battle, I was so disappointed. Not just because of that, but for for many reasons. But did let's us as Harry Potter fans. Let's say, let's remind ourselves of what the whole point of the series is. The whole point of these marvelous, marvelous books. The whole point of everything that happens is to show that you know the, the way back at the beginning. Dumbledore already tells Harry love is the power that will win and love is the power that wins I mean you see it in small ways you see Harry decide to save Draco in the flame you know from the flames in the room of requirement and as a result of that Narcissa whispers is Draco alive and Harry says yes Draco would not have been alive if Harry had not made that crazy decision to go back and save Draco Um, Dobby you know, he shows his love and his compassion for, for Dobby. After Dobby's death, he digs that grave on his own. And because of that, Grip Hook decides to help Harry. Um, look, look at, you know, all of these examples of where love is what actually defeats Voldemort. And it's what keeps Voldemort from being able to possess Harry. Um, why do you think that Harry suddenly is capable of occlumency? after Dobby's death, is because he he is, after that point, has become that final hero, that pure soul. And he can still access Voldemort's thoughts, but it is, it is like, like listening from a distance, it says. The occlumency is natural. It's built in. He is a natural occlumence at this point. He can, it is because he is now changed into that pure soul hero. Um, and so, I guess, the the Deathly Hallows, why are they so important? Because they are, they represent the part of Harry, the hero version of Harry that he is not going to be. He drops the resurrection stone in the forest and doesn't care. He doesn't care to keep the elder wand and use it as 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 you know he it's, it's he's not interested in that he makes the decision that the three brothers he does not choose the wrong decisions of either of the other two bro- brothers but he naturally and without almost without intention chooses the cloak which we see in the story in the in the fairy tale if you will is the correct choice the one that the person makes who has that pure soul, who does not fear death, who controls death, who commands death, who 
tr- greets death as a friend and not as an enemy, which is way go way back to the end of book five, which is the message that Luna gives Harry: the fact that death is not the enemy, death is not to be feared. There are worse things than death, and um, death death is not defeat. Which which again is the the reason for that conversation. Oh, there's so many things. And you might say, well, sounds like we've got this all worked out. But there's still so many so many aspects. The whole concept of wand lore and the whole concept of why uh, the wand... I mean, okay, for example, think about this. Harry, quote-unquote, defeats Draco and takes his wand. So now Draco's wand is has allegiance to Harry. Okay? And, Harry, and Draco was the... Uh, the the elder one was had allegiance to Draco, but Draco didn't have the elder one in his hand when Harry disarmed Draco. And you you see, people get disarmed left and right. I mean, they were doing it in the in book two already during the during the um um during the the dueling club. And I mean, Snape's wand was. He was Expelliarmus was cast, and his wand went flying in book three. This happened over and over. I mean, whose wand belongs to who after a while? Do we want to try to go back all the way through the books and try to figure out who disarmed who and whose wand is whose? And But all of a sudden, this wand lore becomes important to the point where that's where the final... You know, the, the Expelliarmus spell actually works uh, for Harry. So there's things I still need to try to get my head around in this book. I still don't figure, feel like I've got it all worked out and figured out. Um, there's still so much more uh, in this book. And I guess one of the reasons that I love the book so much, and I do love it, is because it wasn't easy. It wasn't simple. Rowling didn't just say, oh, there you go. It's done. It's finished. There you are. I, uh, Harry wins. We're done. But she left us wondering and thinking and trying to work things out. So... Um, so there's always more to talk about, I guess. And uh, where do we go from here? Do we do we continue to talk about Book 7, about the whole series? I'd say in some ways, yes. Um, there is a lot more uh, to talk about uh, in the world of Harry Potter. If we start talking about Pottermore some more, talking about the other books, uh, Tales of Beetle the Bard and um, Quidditch of the Ages and Fantastic Beasts and where to find them, especially Fantastic Beasts now that it's going to be turned into a film. So we'll see where episode 15 takes us. I'll start uh, looking things over and uh, putting some more notes together. Maybe I'll have the wand lore all figured out by the time I do the next episode. Um, But as always, uh, there will be show uh, notes and links on uh, the Lexicon website. That's www.hp-lexicon.org slash podcast. Um, You can find notes there. Uh, Once again, as always, you can contact me if you like at steve at hp-lexicon.org. You can also follow me on Twitter. That's lexicon underscore Steve. There's a Facebook fan page you can find. Uh, There's uh, links will be on the uh, our links are on the podcast webpage. There are also some books out if you want to read more about this. There's um, Reader's Guide to Philosopher's Stone is out. I've been working on the Reader's Guide to Chamber of Secrets. The problem is I keep um, editing and changing. The book is actually about th- mostly finished, but I just am not happy with it because there's so many more things that have come out since I first started writing that book. So it might take a little while on that. I'm also working on the uh, um, what I sometimes call the history of the wizarding world or the history of magic. I'm not sure what the name will be, which is a book about timelines. Since the lexicon was the original timeline of the uh, uh, of the Harry Potter universe, the world of Harry Potter, the very first time anyone did that was on the lexicon. And as a matter of fact, Warner Brothers themselves used that timeline uh, on the DVDs of the um, of, of a couple of the films. So um, that's it's kind of another another honor when your stuff gets uh, when all the research that you do gets gets used by uh, the official uh, official uh, Warner Brothers products. Uh, that's pretty cool. So I don't know where we'll go next. We'll see. Uh, maybe we'll uh, uh, record another episode in the next uh, couple of months. But anyway, that's it for this episode. Uh, thanks to Harry and the Potters for letting me use their music. Um, I especially want to um, remind you that if you are interested in researching more about Harry Potter, the um, 
another website to go to is called Accio Quote. That's A-C-C-I-O uh, Quote. It's a wonderful website. Lisa Bunker is the one who has maintained that. Contains all these um, old interviews from way back when that Rowling uh, did. Uh, and a lot of great information in there. So head on over there. Another wonderful website uh, site is called the, the Harry Potter Companion, which was done by John Kearns, who is also somebody who worked for the Lexicon. And just a wonderful, wonderful website full of great insights, a great collection of fan art. Um, John is one of these incredible people who just can catalog and, and understand the Harry Potter series like no one else. And so I, I highly recommend both of those. Um, but that's about it for this time. Thanks for listening, as always. 